Oh, hang on. Actually, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to take. I've always you'll notice I was wearing my Gillingham shirt, and I also realised that actually, if you wear like nylon, it makes you really sweaty. Mm. So <laughs> I'll be right back. So are you going to record this topless? <laughs> I've got a shirt. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. <laughs> well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to season two of Gaps and Knowledge. <laughs> Reese is turning into Alex Jones or Joe Rogan, I think. Something like that, yeah. But I'm going to be doing, uh, yeah, everything topless. Welcome to the Gaps and Knowledge podcast. I'm Reese, and I'm a geographer that knows nothing about history. And I'm Will, I'm a historian and I know nothing about geography. And on today's episode, we are celebrating the opposite day that is going to be happening on the 26th of January. And uh, opposite day means that it's going to be something slightly different. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> no? Oh, wait. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's not opposite day. Wait, it is opposite day. <laughs> it is and it is. Oh, it's if it's confusing. opposite day, doesn't that mean it's not opposite day? Oh, dear. Oh, God. Well, we've what a great start. <laughs> but and on that note, <laughs> and to confuse things even further, I'm doing the history facts today, <laughs> and I'm doing the geography facts today. So strap in. <laughs> it's going to be a wild one. Right. Well, well, we're back. Should we welcome the boys and girls to the podcast? We are back. Yeah, yeah. welcome to... Are we calling it season two? We may as well call it season two because it's a new year. I'm happy to call it season two. And uh, what's mm-hmm. we managed to pull out in, in almost pretty much a year, what was it, 15 episodes? 14 episodes. Yeah. So I think that's good going. <laughs> considering that's we're, decent going. Yeah, because it's not like we're not busy people. <laughs> we, we are, if anything, too busy. Yeah, yeah. so no, I think we're doing all right. Yeah, we've done pretty well. It, on the 26th, uh, for me, on the 26th of January, there's there's two really important days. Firstly, it's my best mate's birthday, Jamie, who has happy emailed birthday, us before, Jamie. actually. Yeah, happy he birthday. But also, but also, it's opposite day. That's um, that's kind of dictated what we're doing today. So would you like to tell the boys and girls what we've done? Yeah, we've pulled out the Uno Reverso card here, and I'm doing geography and Reese is doing history. And this is going to be... Uh, how to put this nicely, an experiment in failure, I think. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so when you do the trial and error, you, you basically do that to see if it's going to fail or not. Like, we just know yeah. what's going to happen here. Like This is both trial and error. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to this. Now, I don't know who goes first here, because... Well, the, there was it's just one more thing I wanted to add, which is as, as part of the season two reinvention of Gaps in Knowledge, uh, we've also moved podcast supplier over to Anchor, which means oh, yeah. something exciting for the boys and girls. You can now call in. If you're listening on Spotify, I think there's a really easy option to just record a quick message and call in. So if you ever want to call us a bellend for whatever reason, please do. <laughs> and then we'll play it on the podcast. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so if you yeah. happen to listen and you're on Spotify, do that. And I think we could also set up like Q&As and stuff. And it's like, that's just... Exp- well, uh, it's- hold, hold your horses because I've got some okay. homework for the listeners that involves oh, exactly wow. that. Oh, God, you've become much more prepared than I have. <laughs> well, I, well, um, we'll see. This, I'm just going to say, like, researching this has been kind of like, I read a lot of stuff and go... Either I don't understand this, or Will will know that. I'm st- either it falls into those two categories. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, you've taken a different tact from me, which is I've essentially done some history and pretended that it's geography. Is what okay. I've done. So- okay. Well, okay. It, well, I'm just, uh, you know, um, I've, for my main part, it, it, this, 
what I have here is either going to be dynamite or significantly backfire. <laughs> <laughs> like dynamite. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. like dynamite. <laughs> My misconception corner for this week is which continent are the Alps in? Oh, which continent are the Alps in? Yeah. Oh, okay. So obviously you want me to say Europe. I would like you that, to say Europe, yeah. And then I'd say... Be, eh. I'm, I'm wrong. Yeah, so I, well, I, what I... As, can I yeah, tell me your thoughts. Fun, tell me your thoughts. Absolutely. My thoughts here is because because mountain ranges uh, obviously span tectonic plate boundaries significantly. Mm -hmm. So my my thinking is, so for example, like the Ural Mountains, like there is a couple of mountains in Russia, but like but that the actual mountain range is significantly long, a bit like the Andes across um, across South America, and they go across significant like huge continental plate boundaries. So my thinking is, like the Alps might also or is that the point where they're on the African continent? And that's why there's loads of earthquakes in Italy. Something like you that. You are exactly correct. Yes, exactly. Oh, really? Correct. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So it's it is exactly that. It's the African and the European plates smushing together. But the interesting thing about it is if you if you look at a world map and you start at Morocco and you go east, well, kind of northeast into the Pyrenees and then France and then follow the line of the Alps, skip mm. over Austria and follow the Carpathian Mountains down through Slovakia and then Romania and then keep going into Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, the north of India, Nepal, Tibet, Bhutan. All of that is one gigantic mm. mountain belt. It's not a single range, of course, because it's the Himalayas and the Hindu Kush and the Alps and the Carpathians and the Pyrenees, but it's all one great big belt, which was formed by an ocean sinking into the mantle, which is just such a cool idea for me. I didn't know that that was how tectonics worked, but there used to be a yeah. great big ocean called the Tethys Ocean, which mm. as it sank was, well, it was sunk by the African and the Indian and the Arabian plates all merging with the Eurasian plate. And so that means that all of those mountains are caused by exactly that, by the folding of the plates. And so you've mm. got in the Alps, a mixture of African and European and oceanic rock. And so the the most interesting example for me is the Matterhorn, the very, very top of the Matterhorn, which the Matterhorn's kind of like the, the perfect triangular mountain. The very, very top is um, African rock. The very, very bottom is European rock. And in the middle is all oceanic rock. So it's all a big Neapolitan ice cream sandwich just smushed together of these different rocks where they meet and over the, the course of millions of years force themselves upwards. None of which I'm sure is news to you, Reese, but it was very interesting <laughs> well, to me. No, it's just, well, here's the thing, listen, it's I just had a brain moment where I was like, I don't remember researching this. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but one of the things that was interesting about this as well, because I don't know if you know, in Africa, there's something called the African uh, Rift Valley, and it's two mm -hmm. um, constructive plate margins where the plates are moving apart and creating a new ocean within Africa. That's why there's lots of lakes in Africa. Lake Malawi, for example, is being, it's, it's oh, getting wow. bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And uh, and they have, that's why like a lot of, there's a lot of volcanoes in Ethiopia and and, and Kenya, mm -hmm. all the way up to Eritrea. But the really interesting thing, you talk about like oceans disappearing. Um, so Mount Everest, for example, is always getting taller. 
um, mm-hmm. because it's been smushed together. Uh, and the rate of tectonic activity is a little bit faster in terms of making mountains and weathering and erosion at the top of the mountain. So it's always getting right. taller. Uh, but it also what's interesting is that the, the, the Indian plate and the um, the Eurasian plate, where they're, 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 coming, they're colliding together in what they call a destructive collision margin. And the, uh, <laughs> you can find in certain parts of Everest <laughs> like ocean fossils because it used to oh, be underwater wow. <laughs> like there are parts of it where they where you can actually find there like i mean millions of years ago like more, millions mm. and millions of years ago but there there has been evidence of like this area was underwater there was a sea above this rock at one point yeah oh that's incredible <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it's a very strange feeling for me to think about that because it makes me feel like we're just walking on an eggshell and it's all collapsing and cracking and moving underneath us. And we're so short-lived, we can't really feel it. But it doesn't mean it isn't moving. It's very eerie feeling thinking about that. It's weird. If you scale up an egg, for example, actually the, the crust is about the same thickness. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realise <laughs> yeah. it was that thin. Jesus, well, that's not helping. <laughs> no, it's not that or a skin of an apple. It's about the, about the, same, the same thing. And wow. you talked about the way... Um, about the way tectonics move. There's something called the Wilson cycle. And uh, mm-hmm. you obviously have heard of something called uh, Pangaea, which is mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. like the, the big supercontinent that existed hundreds of millions of years ago. So the Wilson cycle is the uh, the cycle of a supercontinent breaking up and then coming back together again 500 million years later. And it's called the oh, Wilson wow. cycle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so that's, what I, that's what tectonic plays. So at the moment, we're probably halfway through the Wilson cycle because we're quite spread out, actually, quite compared spread out. to... Yeah, there's like seven consonants, but yeah. So this is only an idea that's about a hundred years old, I think. Right? It's not that yes, it old is. in terms of scientific theories. So the so the idea of actually um, of, te- of modern tectonics to understand today comes from Alfred Wegener, who I think is, is German mm-hmm. um, scientist. And when he came up with this idea, he was everyone laughed at him as it was a ridiculous idea that. Um, that these kind of like the, the plates were, were like seven or eight major like plate tectonics moving around. And that the fact that South America could fit into Africa, like as a jigsaw mm-hmm. puzzle was just a massive coincidence and people laughed at him. Uh, and, and, and he did significant amount of work to try and prove people wrong. And like, he, he, for example, the idea of, I think using magnetic um, energy, because um, for example, on the, on the mid Atlantic Ridge, which is the, the, under the Atlantic Ocean, where America mm. and Europe is pulling apart, um, sometimes the polar um, magnetic field changes from north to south to south to north. It, it flips, and you can see that in the rock formation as as the sea floor is spreading. <laughs> you can actually see uh-huh. that happening. Just mad. So you can actually wow. see it pulling apart because the magnetic field direction changes like every like hundred thousand years or something like that. Um, uh-huh. But Alfred Wegener. It's a really sad story because he died on an expedition in Greenland before his theory became popular knowledge of modern tectonics today, which is really oh, wow. shitty. So he's like the Vincent van Gogh of geology, just yeah. completely unappreciated in his lifetime. Absolutely, yeah. And uh-huh. it, yeah, only, I think only his assistant was the only other person that was on, was on board with what he was going on with. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so maybe we can give this little moment to him and say, well... Dankeschön, <laughs> 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 the- Herr Wegner. Okay, well, should I go into my misconception corner? Let's head there. 
Okay, so for me, just one of the, like researching this was like, I found it quite tricky. I didn't know what field to go in, so I, I had to find something which myself could understand, like in okay. this area, but like, I could conceptualize and get. So my question is, no, I don't know, you see, history, this is history, obviously, but there's like a, there's like a limit, I don't know, maybe... Is there a limit to history and anthropology? I don't know. There's the, the line between history, archaeology, anthropology is quite murky, but I tend to think, and I think this is what most people think, that history is the written word and archaeology is artefacts and anthropology is studying human cultures. So if it's not written down, it's not history. Okay. I, I think is the best way of doing it. <laughs> so this is an history then. <laughs> Let's do it anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what did the Neolithic do when they had tooth problems? <laughs> okay, right. So, I mean, my wife would be the expert on this because she's an archaeologist uh, and, and did a lot of her university work on Neolithic landscapes in particular, um, which ties in with what I'm looking at in my main thing. Okay. Neolithic is the, is the Stone Age. That's what the lithic bit means. Neo yep. means it's the, the late Stone Age. So when they had toothache, I mean, they're not cave people. They have houses, they have um, food that we would recognize. They have culture that we would recognize to an extent. <clears throat> so I think they go to the dentist is my answer. <laughs> Ah, oh, he's right. They do go to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, yeah. So, I'm, so basically, thirteen thousand year old fillings were drilled with stone and packed with tar. Essentially, is uh, is wow. the answer to this. I know it's mad, right? It makes me it makes my toes curl when I read this. <laughs> <laughs> thirteen thousand years ago, people yeah. were putting fillings in. Wow. It's, which is mad, isn't it? So th th there's there's two si there's two arguments here. So um, there's a, there was a study published in the Physical Anthropology, and it was to do with um, they, they basically discovered in Italy uh, that there were Neolithic dentists, and they discovered mm -hmm. there were like the six um, Neolithic people had drilled. It is in northern Tuscany they found this. They drilled holes or managed to make dents in their teeth, um, and it was it was an it was an unnatural process. It couldn't happen naturally. So that when what mm. um, what the idea was is that they were trying to um, looks like they were trying to dig out the cavities in their teeth and to get rid of all and scrape out any decayed tissue with like a pointy stone which had been created and then filled mm. in with butamen, <laughs> essentially. Uh -huh. So that yeah, was so that's, that's road tar, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like road tar. Um, wow. But the but. So the argument there is, is that they, they used to go through this process and it looks like someone, because you can't do that yourself. Like, so someone mm. must have um, tr either in where they, in their culture was able to do this, or it was just like a practice of like, we brush our own teeth every morning, but don't get someone else to do it for us. Well, I mm. don't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I imagine like, that's what they did. It was just a part of practice. And if they've got um, food stuck in there or they've got a, a gap, they would try and fill it because it might be painful or whatever but there mm. is this but there is another argument that said there would that there weren't um dentists and they said it's possible because they found um evidence of jewelry in the teeth as well so it mm -hmm. could have been a decorative measure or a sort mm. of you know trying to was it to be ostentatious with their teeth or something i don't know mm -hmm. but uh but it could possibly be a way to just show well, I don't know, but look, to have jewelry in there, but mm. 
The difference being, though, is is that you probably wouldn't use tar or putumen to show your wealth or to be probably pretty. not. No, <laughs> no, that's not. I mean, black sticky teeth isn't fantastically <laughs> well. I mean, we say that, but um, Japanese courtiers about three hundred years ago would paint their teeth black what? in order to look <laughs> like they had access to sugar. Because the poor didn't have any sugar, the rich had sugar, and so if you want to look rich, you're going to have black teeth. Uh, oh, I see. So, so they... it could be a similar <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, the oh, tooth right. decay is a sign of 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 um, of decadence of it, of um, eating too much sweet food, <laughs> and therefore being wealthy enough to be able to do that. It's like we were talk- we've talked previously about how being fat used to be a sign of great wealth because you could be um, you could ab- afford to sit inside all day and not work out in the field. So being fat and pale used to be the sign of kind of kings. I mean, think of Henry VIII. Whereas right. now it's it's flipped where being very, very skinny and kind of doing yoga and being very, very tanned because you spend your time going on skiing holidays, that's a sign of wealth. It's but isn't that how that works? That's interesting, isn't it as well? But isn't modern Japanese culture they um try to pale their skin with makeup because they want to look like mm. a Western white skin? Is that correct yeah, me if I'm wrong? Yeah, but yeah, I think that's, that's true, isn't it? That is very prevalent, not just in Japan, but but all over the world. Skin whitening procedures, or or not necessarily procedures, but cosmetics, in order to make yourself look less local and more like the American people that you see on TV, the rich Americans in their rich houses, living their rich lives. Yeah, very much so. So maybe that's the case, and like people just want to look rich. So it's just, it's mm. no, it's not about substance. It's just the facade. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, I, I'm very, very interested in the deep past, though, in the prehistorical past, in the mm. because the the question that interests me is what did they think they were doing? And I, I, we must have spoken about the caves before the cave art. What did the people think they were doing when they were making cave art? Oh, and yeah. What did the people think they were doing when they were doing these fillings? Do they think they're helping? In which case that tells us something very interesting about human beings that we help each other. That that's what civilization is based on is helping other people. Because I mean, my cat doesn't help other cats when she goes out and hunts mice she fights them but we work together (laughs) in groups Um, or is it about decoration is it about embellishing ourselves is it about making ourselves look more than natural more than the world that we come from it's it's very interesting to try and figure out what they were doing and of course there is no definitive answer because we can't talk to them so it's all a little bit hazy and a little bit what does the evidence point towards it's it's Tricky topic, but an interesting topic. That's crazy. There's history philosophy right there. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Shall Shall we get on with it? Yeah, go on, let's do it. I'm ready for it. Okay, so I was, this doesn't start very well for the geography topic, but I was reading BBC History magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Strong. Um, And there was a little article in it about the history of fear and the history of terror, which is a fascinating topic, of course. Mm. And and one of the pieces was about a a psychiatrist working in Berlin called Karl Otto Westphal, or Westphal, um, who had a whole load of patients who were absolutely terrified of the city of Berlin. And and this is in the late 19th century, and it's the time when Berlin's going through a lot of changes. Uh, And one case, for example, was a man who was 
so scared of quiet neighborhoods that he couldn't walk into them. He had a nervous oh. breakdown whenever he saw the edge of the city and where the fields start. But he would also get completely gripped by terror whenever he was in crowded streets or whenever he went to the theater or whenever he went to the bus. The city was just making him so anxious and so afraid um, that he was having physical symptoms from it. And so Westfall had quite a few of these cases all at roughly the same time. And he thought, what, what is going on here? And he came up with a, a new diagnosis, which he called agoraphobia. Have you heard of agoraphobia before? Agoraphobia. I have heard of that before, but I couldn't tell you what that is, but I have heard of that somewhere. I must have read that somewhere, but only read it and not researched what it meant. So mm -hmm. no, I have no it's, idea actually what that is. It's kind of the inverse of claustrophobia. Claustrophobia ah. being, of course, the fear of of enclosed spaces, whereas agoraphobia is the fear of open spaces, but also the fear of being trapped in those open spaces. It's there's oh, a kind God. of claustrophobic element to it, and. It massively, in, well, it first appeared, really, it was first spotted as a diagnosis in the 19th century. And that got me thinking about something that I came across uh, at university, the topic of psychogeography. Do you know about psychogeography? Well, I don't know about psychogeography, but I do know there was a, we did a huge topic on like, um, like sociology and, and the kind of like the, what's it called? So we're looking at how the city impacts the society and sociology of the city, how it impacts behaviour. So you, exactly. There, exactly. So oh, this so is probably closely linked to this. Um, but mm. there was, um, I did do a module on that, um, and I, <laughs> I'd be really clutching at straws to remember everything. But mm -hmm. there was, I remember one particular element because because I live, I went to university in Brighton, and uh, they, <laughs> this, you're, this is quite funny. So they used to talk talk about like in cityscapes it's called the gaze the g-a-z-e so there was mm -hmm. always talk of the gaze of brighton which always was funny <laughs> 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 but um but the idea of like what it looked like to everyone from the outside and who was living there what impression did it have on people as you went through mm. and how did that affect people's economic and social behavior within the city mm -hmm. and that's kind of what the gaze of a city does um so it's both yeah, physical absolutely. and psychological yeah Yes. Yeah. That's the idea. And because I did French at university, that means that the route I came at it from was from French philosophy. And so psychogeography is that, but it's the French version. And what that means <laughs> is extraordinarily French, as we will see. It's, yes. Um, the, the leading psychogeographer was a philosopher called Guy Debord, who is, of course, French. They were all Marxist in the 1960s who were working together and came up with this idea of psychogeography. Um, and Guy Debord defined psychogeography geography as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographic environment, consciously organized or not, on the emotions and behavior of individuals. So oh, it's the wow. same thing. It's, it's how does the geographic environment affect your emotional and life and your behavioral, um, well, your behavioral self. It's a really important part of, 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 of human geography anyway, because, you know, mm. because, uh, and one, and sort of the example, which often we say like uh, in modern, uh, modern um, urban geography, we say there, my city has a really poor part or a really part you don't want to go to and it has a really mm. affluent part. Um, and because you identify as that, you may have more fear in one place than the other, or you may fear both. Mm. And therefore that affects who goes there, who doesn't go there and how it operates. 
And Absolutely. This is, I'm sure this is what you're going to talk about, but that's what uh, came to mm. mind when you were, when you were just uh, mentioned about how the physical environment affects emotion within where you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that's exactly it. Yeah. And, and again, because my expertise is in French, we're going to take this down a very French avenue, <laughs> which means, spoiler alert, I'm going to read some poetry to start with. <laughs> well, of course. If there's one thing I expected Will to do today, was going to read some it's, poetry. So read some French poetry. Now, I, yeah. will, I will read it in translation, don't worry. But <laughs> okay. the, where, where we'll start, though, is with the idea of fieldwork in um, psychogeography, because, of course, every good geographer has to don his waterproof trousers and yep. his roll-up cigarettes and go and do some fieldwork every now and then. It's got a bit of tweed on as well, I have to say. A little bit of tweed if you're feeling if you're feeling fancy. Absolutely. Yeah. But I was thinking for me, fieldwork, I guess this is because Veronica was was up in Scotland when she was doing her archaeological fieldwork. It was always extraordinarily wet and involved multiple thermos flasks of tea. <laughs> is my vision fieldwork. You do know that geography fieldwork only can happen in the rain. Can't happen right. any other I any so. other weather. No. So you only go out when it's raining. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. <laughs> so anyway. here's what um what psychogeographical field fieldwork looks like, and this is Debord again. He says one or more persons during a certain period drop their usual motives for movement, their relations, their work, and their leisure activities, and they let themselves be drawn by the attractions of the terrain and the encounters they find there. Oh, which wow. is a very French way of saying they go for a little walk and have a little think. <laughs> it's just, I, I tried really hard to comprehend that. <laughs> it is just, I, okay, so drop their usual motives for movement and action. Basically, you're not going for a walk in order to do something. You're not going to go to the shops. You're not going to go to the cinema. You're not going to go mm. see what's going on in town. You're just putting yourself on the street and you're seeing what's around you and you're letting yourself be drawn towards it. It's like in... That's mindfulness, isn't it? To an extent, yeah. There is very much a mindful action involved here, yeah. And it's it feels a bit like in a video game to me where you just kind of look around at your surroundings and you think, oh, that looks interesting. I'm going to go and see what's going on over there. Mm. That's psychogeography. Right, okay. And in, so... In, in the present, in the now, what's going on? <clears throat> Exactly. What's going on? And and the tricky thing about it, the, the more interesting thing about it for me, is what effect does that have on my brain? What's going on with my brain in the city? And that idea comes in particular from um, the psychogeographic psychogeographers looking at the poetry of Charles Baudelaire. Charles Baudelaire is the great French poet of the 19th century. And what he did was, he, he was based in Paris. And he walked around Paris and he was miserable, like all French people do. And but you can see in his poetry that as he goes around Paris, he's looking at the city and he's having memories based on what he's seeing in the city. And he's summing up how he feels about being in the city as the city's changing. He's doing psychogeography, but he's not doing it in a kind of... Um, academic report-based sense. He's reporting on his psychogeography through the use of poetry. It's a very, very interesting way of doing it. At least I think. It's also very French. He's probably had a small coffee before he started all this. He had multiple coffees, absolutely, yes. And, (laughs) of course, in the manner of all good French artists, he did die of syphilis, which he caught off a prostitute. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, that's it, of course. (laughs) Peak French. So, I mean, where where we can see this um, is... 
in a particular poem called The Swan. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but I will read a bit for you. So mm. settle in, ladies and gentlemen, because yes, this is really genuinely happening. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I have a drink. I've leaned it back. Here we go. Wonderful. What I, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you're in old Paris. This is Paris of 160 years ago. And so the city is just industrializing and you've got steam trains in the city, but you've also got horses and carriages. Um, you've got some industrialization, but there's still old medieval parts of town that have just been knocked down. And the, the poem starts, or at least the bit I'm going to read from, it says, the old Paris is gone. The former city takes more quickly shifts, alas, than does the mortal heart. I picture in my head the busy camp of huts and heaps of rough-hewn columns, capitals and shafts, the grass, the giant blocks made green by puddle stain, reflected in the glaze, the jumbled bric-a-brac. So he's just looking at the city and he's seeing a whole load of stuff. But as he's doing that, he has a memory. And here's the memory that he has. He says, once nearby was displayed a great menagerie. And there I saw one day a swan who had escaped from his captivity and scuffing his splayed feet along the paving stones, he trailed his white feathers in the dirt. Close by a dried out ditch, the bird opened his beak, flapping excitedly, bathing his wings in the dust and said, with a heart possessed by lakes he once had loved, water, when will you rain, thunder, when will you roar? Paris may change, but in my melancholy mood, nothing has budged. New palaces, new blocks, scaffoldings, old neighbourhoods are all allegorical for me. And my dear memories are heavier than stone. And so, outside the Louvre, an image gives me pause. I think of my swan, his gestures pained and mad, like other exiles, both ridiculous and sublime, gnawed by endless longing. I think of a black woman, thin and tubercular, treading in the mud, searching for palm trees she recalls from Africa, somewhere behind a giant barrier of fog. Of all those who've lost something they may not find ever again, who steep themselves in tears of orphans, skin and bones, dry and wasted blooms. And likewise in the forest of my exiled soul, old memory sings out a full note of the horn. I think of sailors left forgotten on an isle, of captives, the defeated, and many others more. And that's Baudelaire's thought that he has when he's walking through the city and he, he sees this swan and the swan scrabbling around in the dust and he thinks, that's how I feel in the city. I feel like a swan out of water. And I just want to say, um, that was, I was, do you know we did an episode about being in trance? Yeah. <laughs> I definitely felt it then. And then it was, I was, Weird I was how that really, works, isn't it? I was in trance. And then <laughs> I was hoping that when you'd finished, there was a be a bit of a pause, but you went, and this is how he was feeling. And then I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I just need to go, I need to get out of this trance. Um, also, All right, we can edit in a pause then. <laughs> <laughs> my other question is, well, you should be working for the BBC at this rate. <laughs> service that was it was flawlessly read. Um, but you. no, I, I get the idea that, that he's, he's that to me when he's described that he's just seen something mm. which has happened probably in three or four seconds. But he's just 
slowed it right down. <laughs> and mm, just exactly. I mean, that, this is what poetry apart. is. Yeah, po- poetry isn't thinking using your normal brain. It's it's a different way of thinking. And and what he's done exactly, he's seen something happen in the street. What's he? He's just stood outside of the Louvre, and he notices that he doesn't even say what happens outside of the Louvre. He just says, outside of the Louvre, an image gives me pause. He sees something and this thought comes to his mind and he has this great thought in such detail of this swan unable to swim, a swan completely out of its natural um, existence. And then he has a couple of other thoughts of a similar idea of a black woman maybe seeing some pines, but no, we're not in (laughs) Africa anymore. We're a million miles away from Africa of people who are stuck on a desert island and that's how he feels in the city and so that's how psychogeography is working for Baudelaire that he's stuck in this city that he used to love because it's where he's from and he spends all of his life walking around Paris and seeing things that's essentially his job he he invents the idea of, of the flaneur which is somebody who just walks and looks which is such a French idea I love that it is, that's mad that's, that's my a job one. what do that's you do <laughs> I just walk and look <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <It's> a, <clears throat> but, compared, but then he's sorry. reflecting on that in such an interesting way. Sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say, isn't that what most, if not all people do, if they have vision and they can walk? <laughs> uh, yeah, except, except we're not doing what Baudelaire's doing, are we? No, we're not. We're not seeing it in the same way. But I'm to what I was going to say for your homework, ladies and gentlemen, is why not? Why not give it a go? <laughs> Yeah, as well. Why not? Here's here's the homework that I've got is do a Baudelaire, go for a bit of a flan about, go for a walk in your neighborhood. And I mean, this is a bit antithetical to the podcast, but for this walk, don't take a podcast. Don't take any music. Don't take any entertainment. All you need is a pen and a notebook. And every time you see something that makes you think of something else, Every time you have a memory prompted by a sight or a sound occurs that makes you think of something else or a song pops in your head because you heard a snatch of it, just jot it down in the notebook and then go to a cafe and read through it and have a look at what the city is doing to you as you're walking through it. It's a very, very interesting thought experiment. Uh, And that's what psychogeography is, is to try and understand what is your environment doing to you whilst you're walking through your environment. And your thoughts will not be as well put as Baudelaire, of course, because he is one of the great poets of, of humanity. But your thoughts will nonetheless be fascinating because... Who knows where they come from, but the city is doing something to us as we walk around it. And if you if you slow down and if you if you're quiet and you listen to what's going on in your head, you can see the city does some very, very interesting things for us. So do use the phone in option on Anchor. I think we can put a link in our description mm. um, or if it's on Spotify, there might even be a way to do it in the podcast. I'm not sure, but we'll have a look and, and do use the phone into if you've got any interesting city flaneur things that come to mind. I think you're going to be very upset. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, honestly, I spent quite a lot of time trying to find something which I didn't think of your approach, which was like maybe trying to find a geography spin on something, which I probably should have done Mm. in hindsight. So I was like, oh, this is really tricky. And I thought, you know what, right? 
Will was very good at history. That's his thing. He knows a lot of stuff <laughs> about history. So I have devised the hardest history quiz ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's reputation on the line here. <laughs> so I've got 10 questions. <laughs> okay. And what do you what do you think it would be a good result? Um, What's the great the boundary here? I'm I'm trying to work. I, I was thinking about this. Yes, like what is good, and also to mark this, like some of the, so these questions are not necessarily right or wrong. It's like to what extent questions as well. Like Ooh. and so they're a little bit like so some are clear right and wrong, but some are like but what is you know it's a bit more conceptual and, and so it's but I have obviously researched this quite a lot, so I have this all here. But it's like um. But you yeah, I don't offering me a whole buffet of conceptual questions is like letting a bear loose in a meat market. Like we're going to be here for a very very long time. Yeah, and this is the thing. So in terms of timing, these are not all conceptual. These are kind of like like what is right and there are some elements of right and wrong, but there's obviously a bit of discussion around it as well that could exist. So I'm feeling maybe <laughs> try and limit so 2 minutes per question and see if whether I try and judge if it's right or not. I don't know. Let's see how okay. it goes. Okay. Um, or alternatively, strap in. It's going to be this, a long one. It's going to be a long one. Okay. <laughs> we will um, see. Shall we go to question one? I think you know the answer this straight away. Okay. So Let's question go. one, a bit of a mastermind theme in here. Like, <laughs> da, da, yeah. Okay. So question one. So question one is, what was ironic about the 1804 crowning of Napoleon Bonaparte? <laughs> mm, this is a great one. I love this one because Napoleon's such a tit. He, he crowns himself. That's, that's the irony, that he gets the Pope to travel all the way up from Rome. He wanted to do what Charlemagne had done a thousand years ago and get the Pope to crown him because then he looks like Billy Big Bollocks. But Charlemagne went to go and see the Pope in Rome. Napoleon says, no, I am Napoleon. You come from Rome to Paris. And so the Pope is there holding the crown and Napoleon says, no, I am Napoleon. Only I can crown myself. And so he <laughs> takes the crown out of the Pope's hand and pops it on his own head. Whoa. What a move. <laughs> what a was, that, was that the answer? <laughs> Pretty much there. So yeah, I read, I, re, I knew, I did actually read, whilst researching, I read that, that he crowned himself because he's like mm. an idiot and just like the best <laughs> thing in the world, apparently. But the extra thing to add to this is the irony is, um, uh, it, um, was it, I read it word for word. So the irony of Napoleon Beaumont being crowned Napoleon the first emperor of the French in 1804 is that it restored a form of strong monarchy in France just a little over a mm. decade after the French Revolution brought to the abol uh, abolition, uh, abolition, abolition of the old uh, monarchy in 1792. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was that was kind of his point was weird. The old French monarchy was crap. Let's bring back the empire of Rome. And I'm the only person in the world who can do this. I am Alexander the Great. I am Julius Caesar. I am Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah, it's... But, but the... And the further irony is that Napoleon... The... I think it's Georg Heigl calls him history on horseback. He spreads liberalism throughout the whole of Europe. This is why Britain's still not a very liberal country compared to Europe. It doesn't have a written constitution. It's still got a monarch because it was never conquered by Napoleon. But the rest wow. of Europe is much more unified. 
except for Russia, because they were conquered by Napoleon. And of course, Russia wasn't conquered by Napoleon. So Napoleon does completely change the face of Europe, but he does it in such an asshole way. <laughs> He's such a douchebag, that man. Like, I mean, we've said before, the way he treats his wife, his wife is called Rose. And he says, no, no, you're not called Rose anymore. You're called Josephine because I like the name Josephine. You can't do that to people. That's not how names work. <laughs> But it is if you're Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah. Wow. Okay, he's quite a confident man. It sounds like to me. <laughs> he did not. He was not shy and retiring. No, he no, no. he bent reality to his will. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, question one, tick. You know that one. I knew you. I knew you'd know that Napoleon is your area. Um, by the way, these questions like there's no sort of like you, like. When I read the question, you have to maybe work mm. out the timeline where it is in history. Like, it is that difficult? Okay, there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no, no. Through, through flow. I okay. tried to make it varied uh, chronologically, like it's all over the place. That's the idea. Yeah. Okay, so question two. <laughs> Who referred to the Battle of Anzio as a stranded whale? Oof. Okay, this is not something I know anything about. I don't know when the Battle of Anzio was. I don't know where it was. This I I have no idea. Okay. So, oh, okay. This this is. By the way, if there's like a genuine point, because I was thinking on the flip side for me, there'd be geography questions I have no idea about. Like if you get me talking about mm. glaciation, I have not the foggiest really. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I can read this out, and maybe it may mean something to you. So Winston Churchill referred to the Battle of Anzio as a stranded whale when he was mm. criticising the military performance of American military commander John Lucas during the battle. Winston Churchill is often quoted mm -hmm. as saying, I uh, had hoped we were hurling a wild cat into the shore, but all we got was a stranded whale. John Lucas would later be replaced by Commander Lucien Truscott. So this is World War II, I'm assuming. I love the way that Winston Churchill puts things. I mean, you don't, you don't have to talk like that, but <laughs> we'd hoped it was a fierce wild cat, but it turned it into a stranded whale. A brilliant way of putting things. Yeah. He, he's he was the only... But I think the only major politician to have a Nobel Prize in literature. That's mad. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't and, know uh, that. But you can see why. You can, yeah. you can absolutely see why. He's, he's got the gift. He's got sure. the gift of the gaff, isn't he? He can really talk. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, okay. So that one, uh, that fell on dead, dead ears, deaf ears. Not dead ears, maybe as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can still hear. <laughs> Fair point. Okay. I, I, what I'm worried about is every question I ask, you won't be quite sh sure, but hopefully my ex the explanation after, if you're Maybe, not sure, stimulates I mean, something. The, it is impossible to know the whole of human history and the Second World War, I don't, I don't know much about. I know quite a lot about the Nazis because I teach it all the time. Um, and I know quite a lot about the Eastern Front because I have an interest in Russia, but uh, the Italian campaign, I know next to nothing about, for example. Okay. Okay, yeah. so uh, question three. <clears throat> Who came up with Operation Condor? <laughs> oh, Operation Condor does ring a bell, but I can't tell you what it is. Can, can I get a clue here? Um, Latin America. Operation Condor in Latin America. This is some dodgy CIA thing. Are we talking Chile? Uh, we are... It includes Chile, I believe. It's not, I think it does. Yes, it does include so Chile. So is the whole idea behind Operation Condor, I could be in completely the wrong ballpark, but is it the Americans installing fascist and right-wing governments in order to keep communism out? Is that what we're talking about here? 
Oh, okay. I need to read. <laughs> right, so I'll read out the I'll read out the answer and see if your yeah, thought process is right. So, so Operation Condor was an agreement between six nations of South America. Its purpose was to capture and eliminate uh, capture and the elimination of political dissidents, especially those of the left. You're right. <laughs> Regardless mm-hmm. of whether these people had committed crimes, the nucleus yeah. of Operation Condor was an agreement between Paraguay and Argentina in 1972 signed by the intelligence officer from Paraguay called Colonel Benito Guanes Serrano. Um, eventually, the two-party agreement in 72 became Operation Condor when signed by six nations. That's uh, mm-hmm. plus Brazil, Uruguay, Chile, and Bolivia in 1975. Now, if you sincerely believe that the Americans had nothing to do with that, then I have a bridge to sell you because that's what the Americans did in the Cold War. And the fact that this was made by a guy whose first name was Benito, the most fascist <laughs> name in the world, except for Adolf. I yeah. mean, it's pretty dodgy. And this was 1972, did you say? Yeah, yeah, 1972. Yeah. So a year later, in 1973, in Chile, on September the 11th, 1973, the the original September the 11th, um, the Americans launched. Uh, an invasion, more or less, a coup of Chile, and they murdered the democratically elected president and installed a fascist dictatorship. There were kind of hi- helicopters swarming around the presidential palace. There were troops oh invading in order to... He was called Salvador Allende because he wasn't a communist. He didn't want to take Chile and align it completely with the Soviet Union and turn it into Poland or Czechoslovakia or anything like that. He just said, maybe we shouldn't be such big nasty fascists all the time. And maybe a little bit of state ownership of some of these mines will help the country. And the Americans said, you will not take state ownership of these mines. In fact, we're going to put a bullet in your head and murdered him because of his political policies. This is how the Cold War goes in in South and Central America. It's it's nasty stuff from the Americans and it's it's difficult to forgive them for it. But wow. if you see how bad communism was in the Soviet Union, you can start to maybe understand what they were thinking. Like fascism is obviously evil, but what if communism is a worse evil? That's the question the Americans were posing. So it's, it's a very, very dark and dirty and convoluted and tricky topic. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that to that extent. Um, oh, wow. So, okay. Well, well remembered, Will. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think we get a, I think we get a tick for that. So you get, that's another tick. That's two out of three uh, so far. I think you've got. absolutely blagged my way out of that one because I did <laughs> not know what Operation Condor was. <laughs> but you knew enough to, yeah, to, to fight your way through that one. Okay. Um, question four. I reckon you might know this one. Why did Virgil hesitate to celebrate Augustus's accomplishments? Ooh. They were friends, Virgil and Augustus. And and Virgil um Huh. Ah, I think I, I might know what you're talking about. Um Virgil dies before the Aeneid is finished, and he he wants it burned because he says it's not done, it's not complete. I don't want anybody to read this. It's not good enough for Augustus. And so he wants it burned. And luckily it wasn't burnt and it was saved. And whilst it's not quite as good as Homer, it is still one of the great epics um, of poetry. So is is that what we're talking about or is oh, there something I, else going on? I here? think there might be something else because, but that sounds really okay. interesting regardless. The, the key sort of word here is, is, a, is a Latin word. It's, is it uh, triumvirate? 
Aha, yes, the the triumvirate. Triumvirate. Oh god, that's how you say it. I have no idea. Um, It is triumvirate in in Latin, I think, but triumvirate is the English word. Yeah. Okay, triumvirate. I've never heard that word. That was so. um, That looks like it's. Well, I read what this says, and I wonder if it will spark anything. So Virgil Mm -hmm. warned against the new Roman society under Augustus, largely because it was so new. Uh, uh, Augustus and Mark Antony had ruled together as a triumvirate, mm. right, yeah, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. with uh, another insignificant Roman politician, in brackets that was, uh, a, and tension mm. between the two had eventually led to a civil war. Augustus won, leaving him in sole mm-hmm. charge of Rome as the first Roman emperor. But it is important to remember that this form of one ruler government was completely new and had been born out of a generation of conflict and death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, nobody knew what was going to happen in Rome. It's, it's been a massive crisis that had been bubbling for 70 or 80 years for, for generations. And Julius Caesar was stabbed as part of it. And Augustus was, of course, his nephew. Uh, and so nobody really knows what's going to happen. And the the process that Augustus takes Rome through is really fascinating. He turns himself into a god and he has statues of himself put up everywhere as a god, not as a man, but but as a, a figure of worship. And there are temples built to Augustus. Um, but as with many, many powerful men, his political life, men and women actually, because I've just been watching The Crown and there's a very similar idea here. His political life is outstanding. He's a remarkable politician, but his personal life is a complete mess. He has a very bad relationship with um, his wives. He has a terrible relationship with his daughter, so bad that he exiles his daughter to an island off the coast of Naples, where she just lives in prison on this tiny, tiny island in a house with only one other maid and no one else for about 40 years of her life because she's embarrassing him as a politician. Um, There's an outstanding novel by one of my favourite authors called John Williams. The novel's called Augustus, uh, which is getting into the mind of Augustus the man as he goes from this normal Roman person to a god in human form. It's a very, very strange thing that he does. Um, But... Wow. And and Rome was hesitant to go along with it because the whole point of Rome is we don't have kings. The last king we had was an evil tyrant 700 years ago. We don't do that anymore. And Augustus says, okay, what if we don't have a king? What if we have a god instead? It's a very interesting thing to do. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I didn't, Augustus, Augustus from, from rags, to, rags to riches almost, that is what it sounded yeah. like to me. Yeah. Um, well, he, he was born into one of the great families of Rome, so he wasn't one of the paupers, but I mean, certainly from the human to the divine. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm going to, I give you half a mark. <laughs> yeah, that's that reasonable. <laughs> Seems a bit harsh, but half a mark is what I'm going to give no, you no, for that's that one. Fair. Okay. Question five. <laughs> what was Shemu in ancient Egypt? Shemu. Oof. Ancient Egypt isn't one of my strong points at all. It, again, it rings a bell, but but I can't tell you off the top of my head. I'm thinking something to do with the afterlife. So I'm going to guess he was the crocodile that would eat people's hearts when they were weighed. <laughs> just, 
<laughs> I want to know about that. <laughs> but as uh, but, uh, so, oh, so Shemu in ancient Egypt said, unlike many civilizations in the ancient world who tended to use lunar cycles to track annual time, the ancient Egyptians used a solar calendar, a uh, solar calendar consisting of three seasons with 365 days. Shemu was the third and final season that ran from what is now May mm-hmm. through to early September. Right. So is that the season of the floods, maybe? Is that when all the Nile is flooding over and giving everyone their their crops? Uh, well, interesting you say that because I've got a bit more. So Shemu was the time to gather the harvest and prepare for the coming winter, which could contain uh-huh. very cold nights. In the four-month um, period of time that made up Shemu, there were roughly 11 to 12 festivals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's harvest season. Yeah. So that's the sounds Egyptian like harvest season. Yeah, that sounds like a good, a good time of year to be uh, yeah, in the Shemu period. I don't know what they would call it, just Shemu, I suppose. But yeah. Um, so Egypt's not your, ancient Egypt's not your strong point? No, I don't know much about it. The only fact that I do have is extraordinarily crass uh, and involves masturbation. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> yes, no, you've said that. <laughs> do you know how they would guarantee the um, fertility of the Nile every year? I I, I like, kind of want to say they would they would you know do the the vinegar shuffles into the Nile. <laughs> yeah, the the pharaoh would play his meat flute and, <laughs> and um, spaff all over the Nile, and then apparently that made the rains come every year and made sure that it would flood. Of course, so, strange people. I think that's how geography works. If the water cycle, I'm pretty sure how that, that's how that operates. So they've got something right. right there. <laughs> My wife is teaching ancient Egypt to the year threes at the moment, and we did discuss whether or not she would tell them that fact, and we decided probably not. Wise not to. Although maybe it's like I would tell year 12 and 13. Maybe. Exactly. <laughs> okay, question six. I have a feeling you'll know this one, because when I read this question, I would have no idea, but I reckon you'll know this. What led up to the tennis court oath? Oh, tennis court oath is great. Rain is the, the very short answer. Um, so this is 1789. This is the French Revolution. Uh, and all of the different groups of France, France was separated not into classes, but into estates. You had the nobles, you had the priests, and you had all the stinky other people. And they all met in the Palace of Versailles in order to decide what are we going to do about France. And it's a complete mess. Nobody's listening to anybody else. The stinky third estate, they're called the, the peasants and the non-nobles and the non-clergy are being very annoying about everything. And they're saying, we're not going to do anything until we've sorted out exactly how the Estates General is going to work. And it's only going to work along our lines. And everyone's just like, can you just chill out for a minute? And they're like, (laughs) no, there's no such thing as chilling out because we're French people and that's not what we do. And anyway, they decide eventually after about two months of sitting around not chilling out, um, they think they're being attacked by the king. They try and meet in their normal meeting place, like to have a briefing at the morning and the door's locked. And I think it's only locked for cleaning, but they think, oh, Louis is trying to kill us. Quickly, let's run to Paris and let's form our own government. And then it starts raining and they say, oh, let's not go to Paris because we will get wet on the way. Let's go to the (laughs) nearest available big room. And there's a big tennis court where some people are just playing a bit of tennis and they kick them off the court. And and swear together that they will never disband until they are recognised as the official government of Paris, of France. 
So <laughs> it's, it's, it's that's, the start so of the French, French Revolution. That's the most it's great, fr- isn't it? That's the most French thing ever. <laughs> you, you've, you've said more than what I have here, but you've given it much more kind of character <laughs> than what I bore in fact about it. But yeah, that's essentially what I've it's, got it's, written on my card. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's the rain that does it for me because Versailles is, it's like, I don't know, five or six kilometers from Paris. It's not too far. You can get there on the metro today. But ah, it's raining. Can we just do it here? Can we just overthrow centuries of government here? Isn't that easier? <laughs> oh, the French. That's brilliant. I knew you'd know that one. <laughs> okay, question seven. I don't know if you'll know this one, but this uh, is quite a specific one. Question seven. Why was Sir Walter Rayleigh executed? Ah, Walter Raleigh. I know about him-ish. I, well, no, I always get him confused with Francis Drake um, because they were both kind of interesting Elizabethan um, naval men. Walter Raleigh, I think, is the one who founds Virginia. He goes over to the New World. Um, and why he was... And I think, therefore, he brings back tobacco and potatoes um, to the court of Queen Elizabeth. Why he was executed i'm not sure though i can't remember okay so yeah you're right though he, he was a um um where is it i read something he was uh something a traveler a statesman i think they they hmm. think mm-hmm. something like that so sir walter Rayleigh was executed for breaking a pardon he had for a conviction for plotting against king james the first uh, he ah, broke the pardon right. when his men attacked a spanish outpost against his orders during the voyage to Gu- uh, guyana that is very funny to me because (laughs) because when i go past like police outposts or like if i'm driving along the road and there's a border crossing do you know what my my least likely thing to do is is to get out and read it but he's (laughs) such a pirate he cannot help himself It's like me seeing the croissant in the staff room on a Friday morning. I can't help myself. I have to have a croissant. He sees the Spanish. He can't help themselves. He has to go and steal all their doubloons. Brilliant. There you go. <laughs> I feel exactly the same for the, the muffins out there as well at Friday at uh, break time. Yeah. I can empathise with that. <laughs> I, ju- I just love imagining him turning up in the court of King James and King James saying, you know you've done it again, don't you? And he's like, yeah, no, I've done it again. I'm sorry. I I can't, I just can't help it. I love being a pirate so much. <laughs> oh, oh, good man. Again, King Jay must be like, oh, I, oh. It's like he's like the he's like the headmaster of a kid that just keeps reoffending minor minor misdemeanors. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> King James is very strange as well. We'll come on to him in a future episode, I'm sure. But he he was obsessed with witchcraft. Oh but, God, that's for another time. <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked this question. I've taken a lot. There's a lot come at my way which I didn't expect. Um, <laughs> question eight, a bit more conceptual, but I think you'd like this one. How did the Hundred Years' War affect feudalism? Oh, it it kind of destroyed it, essentially, because, well, I mean, this this is all part of the the 14th century crisis where war goes on for a hundred years, plague kills about a quarter of the population. Um, there's the start of new technologies in mining, so there's a lot more money appearing throughout Europe, um, and. I, d- I think I'm right in saying that the Hundred Years' War effectively kills off 
a lot of young men in England and France, and a lot of whom are nobles. And so it leads to massive turmoil. You don't really have the Wars of the Roses without the Hundred Years' War. And that leads to people kind of making a decision between do we want to be a species that always kills each other and always fights and no one's ever at peace? Or would we rather be a species where we all hang out and play tennis and write music and have multiple affairs, which is basically what Henry VIII does. That's kind of how he changes the monarchy. So the, the Hundred Years' War, it sets in chain this, this massive shift in, um, in the way that civilization works because there's so much war that pretty much everyone's affected by it. Is, is that where you, is that what you found? Nailed it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it said, it said the Hundred Years' War affected, um, affected feudalism by weakening it. Uh, the war devastated mm. France, divided political power by weakening the kingship and further destroying the feudal system of the church and peasant class. Farms were destroyed, knights fought for coin rather than loyalty. Combined with mm -hmm. the Black Death, feudalism's end in Europe would soon come, soon and abruptly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's where one of the most interesting people I think in, in history is, is Joan of Arc. She's in the Hundred Years' War. Uh, and the reason why I think she's so interesting is because she is just a random 14-year-old girl. And as teachers, we know what random 14-year-old girls are like. Mm -hmm. They're 14-year-old girls. But she leads French armies in battle against the English as a 14-year-old girl. What a remarkable human being. And the, re the reason why is because she has these great visions of talking to angels and who knows what's going on there. Very, very interesting person, Joan of Arc, from the Hundred cool. Years' War. So, tick. Point. <laughs> <laughs> so far, I think, I think I'm probably got six essentially out of eight. Like where you've known. I do. I do quite like your tactic in this episode, by the way, which is let's see what Will thinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like yeah, exactly. That was I, I just That's dodging the bullet. <laughs> it was dodging the bullet because I was so scared to try and tell you something that I might know that you don't know about history. So I thought actually I'm going to really flip it and go. Let's find out exactly what you know about history. <laughs> well, we've got two more. I think you'll get both of these. Definitely okay. one of them. So question nine: What was the Brusilov offence? If Brusilov oh, offensive. offensive. I I like this story. This is in the Russian um, the Russian front of the First World War. Um, you, you've picked quite a lot of topics I teach, but then I guess I teach quite a lot of topics. The, <laughs> the Brusilov offensive. It's named after General Alexei Brusilov, who in the First World War for Russia was like the only person with an IQ above room temperature. Everyone else was a <laughs> raging moron, absolute idiots. Uh, to the extent that just to, uh, we've spoken about this before, I think, but but the way that they use their railways to move stuff around is they would get the men to walk to the front and considering this is Russia this is hundreds of miles that men are walking over and then put the horses on the trains that's the kind of logistics we're talking about here <laughs> that's so stupid it's insane but Brusilov is the only one who knows what he's doing and so he um, in 1916 at around the same time as the Battle of the Somme launches an offensive and he cuts into the German German line. The, the line had been pretty static for a while, but he cuts a great big bulge. It's called a salient in, in a military history. It's a bulge in the line. And so if you if you picture the line going from north to south, Brusilov cuts a big bulge in it going from um, east to west, from right to left. And the Russian high command has a choice to make. They can either give Brusilov a whole load of support or 
they can reinforce other generals to the left and to the right of Brusilov and attack as a great big line. If you attack as a great big line, it's like in rugby when you run up as a line to defend. It means everybody's pushing forward and you gain mm. space. It's slower, it's harder, but it works. If you just give this, if you just reinforce the salient, then that salient will push and push and push and eventually get cut off. It will get isolated because it pushes too far. And if you, if you can picture in this map in your head, that push going from right to left, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it just gets cut off. And that's exactly what they decide to do because they're all idiots. They're all complete brain dead morons. They think, <laughs> uh, Brusilov's done a good job. Let's give him some soldiers. And so they give Brusilov a whole load of soldiers and they get cut off and they have to retreat. And so again, Russia tries to do something good militarily. And because they cannot do armies, as we've seen in the last year, they just cannot play at soldiers. They get <laughs> cut off and they get destroyed and everything all collapses and it's the end of the world. Excellent. So we're, you know, Russia pretty, pretty strong military force but in terms of brain capacity falls in its ass a little bit yeah the only reason why they're strong is because they've got millions of young men and they genuinely genuinely do not care if they die they wow. are quite happy to sacrifice millions of young men and and this is why in the first world war russia loses one million men between august and december of 1914 alone that's just nuts. in those six months, uh, not even six months, five months, they lose a million men. Not even five months, it's four months. This is how Russia works in war. They just bend and they bend and they don't break. And it works defensively. It's why they weren't conquered by Napoleon and why they weren't conquered in the Second World War. But you cannot win a war that way, as they're finding out today. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah. The, and uh, just a uh, last question, question 10. And um, mm -hmm. I think I think we're safe to say that, well, <laughs> I'm very satisfied with your knowledge, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a question. I'm glad I passed. <laughs> question. I get a certificate? You get a, you get a star. You get a golden star. <laughs> <laughs> um, question 10. What church did John Knox start? Oh, Matt, John Knox. This is something I should know. Was John Knox uh, a Quaker or a Methodist? It's something like that. It's one of the Protestant churches. I'm not sure. Can you tell us? What's the answer? I'll, I will tell you. So John Knox is considered to be the founder of the Church of Scotland. <laughs> oh, okay. And it is a reform. That is not something I know anything about. Yeah, and here's a word that we're going to really botch saying. So it is a reformed Presbyterian <laughs> Presbyterian mm -hmm. church, mm -hmm. also referred to as the Kirk. It is the National Church uh -huh. of Scotland that adheres to the Presbyterian Calvinism. Their words, I don't know what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> Presbyterian, I'm not sure about. I think it's to do with having elders in charge of the church or something like that. Okay. But Calvin was a very early reformer. He was a Swiss reformer. Um a little bit after Martin Luther. And so they were saying the Catholic church, terrible idea, decadent. All the monks are getting drunk the whole time. All the nuns oh. are having abortions the whole time. It's not what the church is meant to be. And I mean, this is- That sounds fun though. Uh, you set me off again. <laughs> it does sound fun, but this is, this is a reaction to the collapse of feudalism. The whole world has ended and people are looking around going, well, what the hell is going on? And they look at the Catholic church and they say, this is not what the Bible said it should 
should be. This is decadent. This is corrupt. This is evil. And that's why God has forsaken us. And so that's where Protestantism comes from. And this is what all the wars between Protestantism and Catholicism are about. It's about your version of Christianity has destroyed the world. So it's got to change. It's not just about kind of, oh, well, you, the bread doesn't turn into God when you eat it in mass. It's about, no, you've destroyed the world here. So you are wrong and we are right. And we are going to prove that by killing you. Wow. I don't want to live in that time ever. I don't want to. Nope. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, on reflection, that was the world's hardest ever history quiz. Um, and I, I'm so happy to say, I think you've got seven and a half out of 10, which okay, for the, world, for the world's hardest history, history quiz, that's, that's pretty good. So I'm not even going to say it's the so-called hardest history quiz. No, it is the hard, hardest. <laughs> um, but I just want to, on, on reflection, how do you feel about the quiz? Well, I feel like you've now used up about 10 episodes worth of material in fell asleep. <laughs> oh, shit. So oh, well. um, next oh, well. week, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the sound of the barrel being scraped. <laughs> Shall we right. go on to number time? Number time. Yeah, number time. Um, I'm going to have a break from talking. Well, actually, you did all the talking, actually. What we're talking about. You, <laughs> you're also going to keep talking now to do your number time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I've done a bit of... And this is kind of the history of geography, I suppose. Okay. Because I, one, of the, one of the things I'm very interested in is expeditions and explorers. And, I mean, who isn't interested in that mm -hmm. kind of thing? Um, and... Do you, is it kind of a, a geographer's thing to have a favourite explorer? Um, I don't know, actually. I don't think it is. I wonder, maybe in contemporary, like, explorers, but even, like, what's a contemporary explorer these days? Is, is that's, that's more, like, galactic, I suppose, these days. But, like, <laughs> but I, it's... Uh, no, I, I, I don't have a favourite explorer. I think you may just have uh, favourite people that like to travel and, and write books and write and write things that's happening around the world, but then you become a bit of a journalist. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's a funny one. Um, mm -hmm. No is the answer to that question specifically for me, um, but I'm sure okay. that will vary amongst uh, geographers in the in the field, yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's one in particular um, that I'm interested in called John Franklin, who led an expedition aboard the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus. Does that ring a bell? Uh, no, but I do like its name. <laughs> <laughs> Good names. Calling a boat HMS Terror is a very bold move because things had better go right. Otherwise, yeah. you look like an idiot for the rest of the time. <laughs> um, uh, spoiler alert, they don't go right. The, of course not. <laughs> how I came across this is a, there's a, a book by a science fiction author called Dan Simmons, and the book is called The Terror, and it's a novel based on this. Uh, and there's a TV show about it that came out maybe five years ago called The Terror, which mm -hmm. is a, a dramatization of this, which um, by all accounts is very good. I think it's on Sky, so I haven't seen it, but by all accounts it's, it's terrifying and gripping. But the, the number time is... It's to do with the HMS Terror. It's an expedition. And the number time is at least three. And not, okay. Terror, at least three. And this is the boat. Uh, okay. HMS Terror. Yeah. There's two separate boats, the Terror and the Erebus. On and at least three. Is, at least is it three. something like how many times? Um, oh, no, that won't work, actually. 
Uh, how many times did it sink and survive? At least three. That doesn't work. <laughs> that yeah, doesn't that's work. not quite how sinking works. No, that's not how it works. Um, so at least three. It's something like how... Um, how many... It's a how many of something maybe... Uh, oh, that's a tricky one. Like how many... What era is this again? We are in the 1840s. 1840s. I wonder if it's something to do with like weaponry or uh, like how many somethings did they bring onto the ships to take with them? Like, or how, or maybe, ah, I got my, my guess is like how many stops did they have on the way of one of their voyages or something like that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is what I'm Interesting idea. With. It's not. Correct, but they didn't do that many stops. No, um, but yeah, interesting idea. No, I will, I will tell you. The correct answer is how many years did the crew of HMS Terror and Erebus survive whilst okay. their ships were destroyed by the ice? I was going to say something. To, ice was kind of my next point, actually. I was going to try and go down that route. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Okay, so they survived three, at least three years mm-hmm. navigating before gla- they died. glaciers. Before they died, navigating glaciers. Yep. Okay. Uh, well, not quite. So the what happened was that the whole point of it is they're looking for the Northwest Passage. Oh, which, that's, that's, what, what do you know oh, about the Northwest Passage? God, that's why, I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, one of the things about the Northwest Passage, there are ways through the Northwest Passage, but it's mm. always treacherous. Things always go wrong because there's ice, or, and ice moves when, it, when it's in the water as well. It's always changing. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the, in, in contemporary geography, um, one of the, dare I say, benefits of global warming is that it can shorten trade routes and shipping routes because it means that mm. the Northwest Passage can become accessible and cut off long journeys around like the bottom of South America, for example, and, and so on. So you can actually cut through different parts of the world, which you couldn't do before and because the ice isn't there anymore to block the way. Um, exactly. But that means if the ice is there, it's very dangerous to be able to go through these places because your ship is just going to get absolutely destroyed by ever-changing landscapes or ocean landscapes um, because ice just moves all the time. Uh, absolutely. Guess what happened to the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus? That is exactly if, the story. Yeah, it just cr- probably careered straight into one of these ice blocks that then just sunk. Pretty well, I, it's it's a bit more terrifying than that, to be honest. I mean, calling it the HMS Terror was prophetic because so they set off 129 men, set sail from Greenwich, 19th of May, 1845. Um, they are spotted in July by some whalers in the north of Canada at Baffin Bay. And apart from that, the ships aren't seen again by Europeans until 2014. Oh, it's <laughs> not a great way for things to end. No. Um, we know that over the, the, the ships, they, they had iron reinforced hulls. So they were designed to be trapped in ice over the winter. Um, but over the winter of 1845, they get trapped a little bit more than they would have liked. And the ice, as it shifts, as, as you said, um, because ice can flow, it starts to shear away at the hulls a little bit. So they've got to repair them. Um, and the repairs they do aren't fantastic. And it seems as though the food supplies they had weren't packed properly. Oh no. They've got, tins of food, but it's the very early days of tin technology. And so the tins are rotting, essentially. So when they get trapped in 1846, in September of 1846, they don't get trapped by hitting anything. It's just the days get colder and colder. And they're so, so far north. They're north of Canada. And Canada's pretty far north. That's pretty, very north. Yeah. (laughs) God. And you can imagine that the sea freezes um as the as the winter comes on so they get trapped in september again and the ships get destroyed in september 
And we don't really know what happened because there's very, very little evidence. But what we do know is that they were on a place called King William Island from September of 1846. Uh, and we find a note there in April of 1848 saying that the men are abandoning their ships. They're going to walk south for a hundred miles, uh, sorry, not a hundred miles, a thousand miles to try and find civilization. Um, but that the leader died in 1847. And of the 129 men who um, who made it to northern Canada, none of them survive. And I can't imagine All they did. All of them die trying to get back to civilization. That's the thing, um, though. When you, when you take your boat into that environment, that is the only thing keeping you alive. <laughs> yeah. It, it's literally yeah. You, you need to make sure you can get out again. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Interesting you say northern Canada. Did you know the most northernly permanent settlement in the world is in Canada, in a place called mm -hmm. um, Alert, uh, is the, actually the name of the, of the settlement. It's actually like a naval base or like an army base, but it, uh, it has permanent residency there uh, for these people. And it's very far That's north Canada. Name. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's like in the Nunavut region. So it's in the region. Mm -hmm. Nunavut is like the, the tribal region of Canada where the um, uh, Inuits and other um, Inuit tribes live. But yeah, mm -hmm. it's a place called Alert. It's re I mean, we're talking, it's pretty much, is it like 80 degrees north or something ridiculous like that? It's, oh, wow. It's proper, uh, proper high up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, so you wouldn't want to get, get, get caught short there. <laughs> No, absolutely not. And these guys did. And there's there's a wee bit of cultural homework if you should want it. If you haven't had enough culture for today, <laughs> then um, yeah, this book by Dan Simmons called The Terror. It's quite a long one. It's about six hundred pages, but it's very very gripping. Um, but there's also a painting which we'll put on the Twitter uh, by a guy called Edwin. Um, the Lounseer, I think it's called, called Man Proposes, God Disposes, which is a great name for a <laughs> painting. That's great. Um, and it's just two whopping great big polar bears munching on some corpses, having a whale of a time. Nice. It's a very, very funny painting. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Stay away from the cold, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> You're, uh, I'm gonna. If I, I'm not a betting man, but if I was to put money on this, this we'll, we'll know this. So I don't know why the okay. hell I've chosen this. <laughs> because what's going to happen is I'm going to start saying a couple of things, and we'll, we'll just explain it flawlessly. So my number time is a, is a is a thousand and Napoleon. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, a thousand and Napoleon. That is a wee bit vague. Um, a thousand and Napoleon. Um, I'm thinking through all of Napoleon's battles. He won 53, I think. So it's definitely not that. Um, a thousand and Napoleon. Is it how many times bigger than the average man was Napoleon's ego? <laughs> uh, that actually may be accurate. <laughs> it isn't the answer I have here. I have an extra clue if you want to, uh, yes, if you please. want that. And the extra clue is attackers. Attackers, a thousand attackers. With Napoleon. Okay, so we're talking about a particular battle. Um, hmm. The only battle that I can think of where this might apply is the Battle of Arcola in the Italian campaigns. So I think it's 1796. Is that what you're talking about? No. It's a different battle. It's a, it's a different thing. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, tell me about it then. So this is Napoleon Bonaparte and the attack of the bunnies. 
<laughs> this is a gap in my knowledge. I have not heard of this before. What? So this, uh, there is... Um, in, oh, wow, really? <laughs> so yeah. there, there is um, an incident where Napoleon was attacked by a thousand bunnies. R- rabbits. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> oh, this is brilliant. Okay, so I've got to, re- I've got to read it out then. I have it here. So in, 18- uh, so in 1807, Napoleon had just signed a peace treaty with the country of Russia uh, to celebrate mm-hmm. the momentous occasion he ordered his chief of staff, Baron Louis Alexandre Bertier. <gasps> Oh, yes, I have heard of this. Yes, 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 yes. So ar- keep, keep going, keep going. Uh, to ar- arrange a fashionable outdoor luncheon and rabbit hunt, and Napoleon rounded up his men, briefly prompted, set about gathering around a thousand rabbits for his manly pursuit. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is now the release of the bunnies. <laughs> so everything was ready. I love this. Where I, where I found this is they tell it as a nice little story. I think it's really cool. So everything was ready. The numerous cages of rabbits were was situated on the edge of a grassy field of a luxurious estate. Trumpets sounded the signal to release the bunnies. It was presumed that they would panic and head for the freedom of the open space of the field. <laughs> Napoleon and his companions were armed and poised for the hunt. But, <laughs> contrary to man's best laid plans, the confused creatures charged straight towards Napoleon. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of frenzied fluffy bunny rabbits bombarded him and his mighty men (laughs) so this is the great bunny attack of 1807 (laughs) they swarmed under his legs and climbed up onto his gold embroidered jacket they nibbled at his gold buttons and gnawed at his boots Napoleon could not position his weapon to shoot them his military men tried to drive them off with riding crops whips and sticks they succeeded in this manoeuvre enough to allow a humiliated Napoleon to retreat to his carriage <laughs> the score currently is bunnies one napoleon nil <laughs> just backwards men the bunnies are too strong <laughs> just as they thought they had won the battle the army of rabbits attacked again from the rear dividing into two groups on either side of napoleon by now A <laughs> By now, Napoleon was running for the safety of his velvet-seated carriage. The rabbits were in hot pursuit, overtook him, and even continued attacking him inside the carriage. (laughs) Finally, the horse-drawn carriage pulled slowly away, and the perplexed rabbits dispersed, presumably to attend their own celebration of victory. Oh. <laughs> Man, so we have Trafalgar Night in Britain, and the bunnies have bunny attacking Napoleon Night. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, there's a little Brilliant. bit more to this just as a kind of as a conclusion. Yeah. So why the bunny attack? So now here's the thing. The um his chief of scout, Baron Bertier. Is that how you say his name? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Bertier. Bertier, uh, being lazy and ig- and ignorant of all things rabbit, uh, had collected tame bunnies f- uh, from farmers instead of from the rabbit warrens of the wild. So he had um, ah. like farmed rabbits rather than wild rabbits. <laughs> and <laughs> the idea was that they were hungry and they understood that humans brought them food. <laughs> so they ran towards Napoleon <laughs> wanting food <laughs> instead of the opposite direction as expected oh, what a wild rabbit would do. Yeah. 
There, there is something about military affairs in Russia that just mean that they always go tremendously stupidly. It's ah, that's good. <laughs> I, I think so. That's eighteen oh seven means we're talking about the Treaty of Tilsit, and this is in War and Peace. But they don't mention the bunny fight in War and Peace. No, <laughs> I mean it's quite humiliating. <laughs> It is, man. What a great story. What, what it what it brought to mind for me was the. Do you know about the the Russian anti tank dog explosions that they had in the Second World oh, War? Oh, that when they yeah you they didn't they send dogs out to go under tanks to make them explode, but instead they went to the people that fed them and they exploded themselves or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they're blowing up their own tanks. Yeah. Same kind of thing. It's so stupid. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, I think anything like, with animals in battle, I'm, I mean... It's, it's great. Oh, it's, like King Canute, <laughs> unable to hold back the tides. Napoleon, unable to hold back the rabbits. <laughs> Wonderful. So, uh, Will, that was um, that was opposite day. <laughs> it's, it's concluded now. I think we're going to... Shall we go back to our own subjects? <laughs> I think so. I think that's safer. <laughs> it's much, much safer that experience. Mine was much of a deviation from my subject, to be fair. No, and in fairness, my one was just testing your own knowledge. So actually, this was just mainly history, wasn't it? <laughs> oh well, as it should be. <laughs> oh dear. Ah, well, I can't argue that because, uh, yeah. Although I, I, I do feel, though, um, I do feel I've learned significantly much more about history, and that it's very difficult <laughs> and I <laughs> therefore learned I'm going to stick to my own subject <laughs> but um, but yeah thank you listener uh, for listening and obviously you can um, see all our socials you can find us on Twitter we're at Gaps Podcast and we're also on YouTube if you just search Gaps and Knowledge Podcast you can find us there and you can we're also on Facebook of course just search for Gaps and Knowledge Podcast and you'll find our page and if you want to get in touch you can email us uh, Gaps in knowledge at outlook.com uh, and of course now that we're on anchor there should be a link in the in the episode description um for you to leave us a voice memo uh and if you do we will play it on the show and um yeah get involved yeah um and we will try and be a bit more uh, frequent with our episodes moving forward for our second season now is it now this is definitely the second season, season two yeah season new season two. new you yeah oh here we yeah. go that's exciting <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time <laughs> see you next time